This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Welcome to On the Cover, a weekly Madsplainers feature. I'm podcast producer Natalie Yar, and each week I sit down with the reporter behind our latest cover story to find out why it matters. Today I'm talking with Emily Shetler, who joined the Cap Times for the summer as the David Marinus Fellow. She's spent months visiting food banks and pantries to understand how the pandemic has reshaped hunger in Dane County and how local agencies and farmers are responding. Welcome to the podcast, Emily. Thanks, Natalie. So we've been hearing in the news about how a lot of people are showing up at food pantries for the first time ever because of unemployment or other financial strains caused by the pandemic. What do we know about the scale of food insecurity in Dane County these days? So uh, the short answer is it's way up. Feeding America, which is the consortium of food pantries across the United States, says that in Dane County, they predict a 63% increase in food insecurity in 2020. Uh, The Goodman Center on sort of a micro level has seen about a 30% increase over their normal amount. And you went to visit some of these local food banks and pantries. Tell me about what these places look like. So Second Harvest is where the food is sort of gathered. They're the food bank. Right. They are the suppliers of the smaller food pantries. So everything is sort of run through them. They have a gigantic warehouse that's stocked with food in a very organized way. There are aisles and aisles of food, both perishable and dry goods. They have these giant coolers, like much, much larger than my apartment probably the size of like a lecture hall or something, maybe like a small lecture hall size of cooling space. So it's a huge operation. So then the pantries, and I went to visit some pantries as well, they are sort of the smaller operation, right? They are what they get the food from Second Harvest and they deliver it to people. In the pandemic, they have, most of them have set up a sort of drive-through pantry service. So imagine cars driving up into the parking lot where volunteers then put food items into their car and then the people drive off. And when the pandemic hit, what changed first at these places? So a few things changed. First of all, demand shot up overnight. As John Lycan from the Goodman Center said, it tripled. So people were very nervous. You probably remember in your own life having sort of panicked conversations with everybody, right? Nobody knew what was going on. The viruses was was new. We didn't really have a lot of explanations for how it was transmitted. Businesses were closing. Everything just sort of was changing. And so people panicked and started panic shopping. So even if you did not experience food insecurity, you probably remember going to the grocery store and buying a ton of food because you were scared that you were going to have to, you know, make food out of your home for a very long period of time. So demand shut up across the board. 
then at the same time, the systems that were in place for food distribution were overloaded because they'd never seen this kind of demand before. So in the story, I think Tim Metcalf was really great at explaining what that looked like. And I think, again, we can all remember going to the grocery store and seeing empty shelves for what seemed like random food supplies, right? Like flour was gone, spices, eggs. And remember how there was no yeast? All of that happening in the grocery store supply chain was also being echoed in the food insecurity supply chain. Then you also had restaurants closing, right? Overnight, restaurants had to shut their doors. And so there was all this perishable food that they had to get rid of and that they were trying to give to people to help feed people, but they had to get rid of it really quickly because it was perishable, right? And there, there isn't a lot of ways to store that kind of food. Also, lots of volunteers were retired folks who suddenly were at risk and couldn't help volunteer. So those are sort of the things that changed very rapidly. And what are some of the most creative ways you saw these agencies adapting to meet that growing need? So first of all, the CARES Act was passed. So Dane County got $95 million from the CARES Act, and $6 million of those dollars went to Second Harvest to help. So overnight, they had more money, which they needed because they needed to... So instead of getting donations in the same ways that they were used to getting them, they needed to purchase food instead. So they got this money, they were able to purchase food to meet this need. So that was number one. Number two, they just generally had more food. <laughs> um, and you know, in recent years, they'd really been promoting a choice pantry option for pantries. And that means that clients would come to a pantry and they would choose from the options available, you know, whatever they personally needed and wanted. Once the pandemic happened, Second Harvest just had a lot more food to supply. So they switched back to assembling pre-made boxes for food pantries. So they would give pantries a certain number of boxes to give directly to clients. They were just like maximizing distribution at that point, which they're still doing. So then another thing that happened on the supply side was as part of the CARES Act funding, Second Harvest needed to prioritize getting produce from Dane County farmers. So as I mentioned in the story, Scott Williams, He's a local farmer, and he had already been organizing small local farms into sort of a consortium to sell their food to local restaurants. So for them, overnight, that market disappeared. So he ended up working directly with Second Harvest to bring those farms, plus other Dane County farms. He sort of like tripled the amount of farms that he was working with and sort of collectively sold those vegetables being grown at those farms to Second Harvest for use in distributing to food pantries. So that's another thing that changed very rapidly. On the distribution side, there was sort of a change in terms of the pantries themselves and the ideas behind how food got to people. So 
a few years ago, the Darbo Pantry Project, which was run in part by Joe Mingle, who is in the story, they started delivering food directly to people's homes. And so instead of somebody having to go to a fixed place and get it, the food was delivered directly to them. Because one of the things about food insecurity is people who need food often are working a lot, right? People are working several jobs. They have families to take care of. They don't actually have time to go on a Tuesday between one and three o'clock to a place to pick up food. So what the Darbo Pantry Project was trying to do was to make it easier for people to get the food that they need. So what happens now in the past six months is that has been taken one step further. So Joe Mingle's organization, Healthy Food for All Dane County, what they're doing is they're taking like a van, right? He has this van and he loads it up with all of the perishable food he can from Second Harvest. And he goes directly to community leaders, to people who already have a network, apartment building managers, the Boys and Girls Club, different spaces where there are individuals there who know who is in need, who among their social network is in need, who, you know, who eats pork and who doesn't. He gives the food to the people who know the needs of the community the best. So that has been another change during the pandemic that's been really interesting. And he does this like five days a week. He's constantly getting food from Second Harvest and delivering directly to people. So I think that the whole idea of a pantry seems to be shifting a little bit and what it can mean. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. And with all these adaptations, has that managed to control the chaos? Where are we at right now? Yes, it has. I, I think that everybody has sort of worked out what their new normal is. The Goodman Center, like I said earlier, they're at 30% above normal. So they now have volunteers in place. They have a system in place for distributing the food. They know what, what it looks like. Same with Second Harvest. They have the funds. They've worked it out with local farmers. They have a distribution plan. It looks like everybody has this new normal. I think what everybody is experiencing, including folks in food insecurity is the unknown, right? We don't know what the future is going to look like. The funding, the CARES Act funding is allocated through October. So then that is over. At the end of July, a few things are happening. So in the next few weeks, evictions, there has been a moratorium on evictions from the federal government. And so that is ending. Also, the extra $600 of unemployment money is ending. The, the stimulus check from several months ago, most people have already spent it. And we still have a situation where there are lots of people out of work. So I know that Second Harvest is preparing for 
what is to come. But, you know, I think a lot of people are waiting on a stimulus bill and waiting to see what that will look like from the federal government. Yeah. This has clearly been a really awful situation. But as you mentioned, we've seen a lot of kind of speedy adaptations. What kinds of lessons are coming out of this moment and what changes might stick? I think that the idea of local systems is being proven to be maybe the best systems for situations like this on a sort of more global level we have local farms being able to supply local people with produce we have um, local manufacturers being able to come in when national manufacturers are not able to keep up with demand. And we can see that within communities at the smallest level, when we are able to listen to people who are on the front lines about what their needs are, it seems we are better able to meet those needs. So more of a recognition of how important it is to understand your community and where the needs are and how people who are able to help can help. That's great to hear. And if someone listening needs food or knows someone who does, what can they do? The best thing to do is to call 211. It works like the 911 system, but do not call 911. Call 211. That is the United Way's helpline. And you just give them your zip code or the zip code of the person in need. And They have the most up-to-date information on food pantries in the area. Excellent. Emily, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Natalie. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Emily Shetler, the Cap Times Summer Fellow. Tune in next week for a conversation about our next cover story. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to The Madsplainers on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you do your listening, and leave us a review while you're there. Also, be sure to check out our other podcasts, including The Corner Table, all about food and drink in Madison, and Wedge Issues, all about state politics. Until next time, thanks for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.